Everybody, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Oh, man, I was really hoping for that extra 10 minutes. All right, Revelation chapter 6. Um, I have a goal for tonight, as you guys are turning there. Um, goal is quite simple and straightforward. I really want you guys to come away tonight exhausted. I really want you guys to come away from tonight's lesson to be utterly spent, to be completely overwhelmed. You know, I try to do a, a decent job of balancing scripture passages that we read, scripture passages that we turn to, scripture passages on the screen to try to balance it out. That way it's not too overwhelming. But tonight, if there is a lesson to be overwhelmed, if there's a lesson to have information overload, if I can even use that term, because I don't want the Bible to ever be information. I don't ever want to teach information. No teacher should ever want to do that. But given the subject matter we're going to be covering tonight, if there is something that I want you guys to be utterly exhausted and spent with, it's tonight. I want it to be that when we're done with tonight, you guys are like, man, I know we were all going to go out and get Raising Cane's chicken afterwards, get some double toast, and get some fries and just have some really good fellowship. But man, I am just so overwhelmed. I can talk louder than all you. I am just so overwhelmed with what we looked at in Scripture tonight that I just got to go home and pray. If that could be my prayer, <laughs> that's what it is. So, before we begin tonight, I kind of want to go through something with you that, that maybe you've never heard of or maybe you've never considered before. But how many Gospels are there again? Quattro, which in English is... All right, good job. See, you don't need to take Spanish. You guys know it. There's four Gospels. And you may not realize it or not, but all four Gospels, the way that they're written, they present our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in four different ways in the writing of those men, in the writing of those authors. I was trying to find a way to really put a punctuation on that statement and then just kind of fell through. Probably because I was thinking of, man, I wonder if Andy really did arrest guys from Raising Cane's. How good is the quality of my chicken there? Matthew, when it's writing, presents Jesus Christ as king. And even specifically, the king of the Jews. Matthew is the most Jewish gospel in all four gospel accounts. It has more Old Testament references than any other scripture in the gospels combined. Matthew is it. And not only does it present him as the king, but it presents him as the king of the Jews. And you know what's kind of neat? If there's an animal in the scriptures that, that represents this, it is a lion because Matthew presents... Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king. He is the rightful king because you trace his lineage all the way back to King David in the book of Matthew. It's the only genealogy that presents that. And it shows him, it represents him as a lion. And you know what's interesting about the book of Mark? The book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, presents Jesus Christ as a servant. You know what's interesting about that? It's more of a Roman perspective. It's written more from a perspective of, here is Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark chapter 10, I believe verse 41 says that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You know what's interesting about that? If there's an animal that is presented in that kind of a vein, if there's a picture representation of an animal, it's a calf. I'm going somewhere with this. Yeah. What's the interesting about Mar calf, not cat. <laughs> calf. Calf, Andy. Move. No, not, not like leg. Mark is the shortest gospel account in all of the Bible. It's quick, 
and to the point it gets the job done. It gives you just all the basic details you need to know to be on the move, which back during this time, when you were a servant in Rome, you were always on the move. You needed the basic, simple fundamentals, the ins and outs of what was needed, and that's what Mark's Gospel presents. It doesn't bother with all of the Old Testament details and the Old Testament passages and how Christ was the fulfillment thereof. It just gives you the very short and sweet what you need to know. And again, to go back to that Mark verse that I just referenced, he came to not be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You know what's interesting about a calf? Is that it gives its life both in service and in sacrifice. That's exactly what that verse says. To minister service and to give his life a ransom for many, sacrifice. And then you come to Luke. And you know how Luke presents Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Presents him as a man. The God-man, the perfect man. Perfect in his humanity. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. But we have an advocate with the high priest. He understands because he walked around in this flesh. He knows everything that we go through. He can identify and relate to everything you experience on a daily basis. It's so detailed. It's so invested in his humanity, which is probably the reason why Luke is the longest and biggest gospel account out of all four of them. And you know what's interesting? You know what uh, animal would personify the gospel of Luke? This is real deep. It's a man. You know what's kind of interesting about all of these animals so far? Is that each and every single one of them, they are the supreme or the king of each of their kingdoms. A lion is the king out of all of the animals of the wild. A calf is, a, is the king, is the, the supreme top of the notch for all the domestic animals. Man Oh, goodness, you just trace it back to Genesis chapter 2. Man was supposed to have dominion over everything in the world. But then you get to the Gospel of John. And you know how John relays Jesus Christ? Who could fill in the blank? God. John's Gospel portrays Jesus Christ as God and the king over the heavens, the animal that relates to it. Is an eagle. John's Gospel. Whereas Matthew's Gospel tra uh, traces his lineage all the way back to King David, Mark, he has no lineage because, like most servants, they don't have a lineage. Luke traces his lineage all the way back to Adam, man, and John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 14. The King of the heavens. We have four presentations of Jesus Christ, four different Gospels, four different depictions of His life, His ministry, His sacrifice, His resurrection, and His commission. Four different accounts. Now, why go through all of that? Well, for one thing, especially the animal portion of it, if you were to look at, which we don't have the time to tonight, Revelation chapter 4, you'll see that in heaven at the throne there are four beasts surrounding the throne, kind of like what we read before we sang tonight in Revelation 15, all singing this song, all praising God, saying, Glory, glory, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Who is worthy to open the seven seals? More on that in a second. Not just to point out that all four of those just so happen to be at the throne in the book of Revelation. A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. But why did I go through all of this? There are four different accounts of Jesus Christ's first coming. The reason this is important to know because tonight we are going to look at a vast majority of the book of Revelation, which is part of the reason why it's going to be exhausting. 
And what most people fail to realize, and there's different varying opinions on this, even amongst good-meaning Bible believers, is that what people fail to realize, they think that Revelation is a all one chronological story from beginning to end. And what you fail to realize, and what we're going to see tonight, is that just like there were four different accounts of Jesus' first coming, there are four different accounts of His second coming found in the book of Revelation. And just like the four different accounts of the Gospels of His first coming, some books leave out details that you only get in one other book. One book might mention something that's not found in any of the other three. And the same thing with the four accounts of the tribulation period we're going to go through tonight. Most people believe that all four of these accounts, they're not the same account. No, it's just a continuation of a one long big story. It's not the case, and you're going to see that tonight. Jesus Christ, just like He did in the Gospel, He gives us four accounts of the tribulation events on the top of your outline there. We're going to see the seven seals which is what those four animals that are on the screen here, they're all crying in heaven. Who is worthy to open the book of the seven seals? Who is worthy? It's the Lamb. He is worthy. You have the seven trumpets. You have the Antichrist, which we already kind of touched on the last couple of weeks, his viewpoint, the, the, the account of the tribulation from his standpoint, the last couple of weeks we looked at that. We're not going to touch that tonight. And then we're going to conclude with the seven vials. Now it's important to note, and we touched on this before when we covered the rapture, and this is one of the most prime examples of how you know that these three moments, or these four moments are all the same account of the seven-year tribulation period. Because at the end of each of those four accounts, it's the rapture of the tribulation saints. It's the rapture of people who get saved during the seven-year tribulation period. And we'll see that. So on your outline, letter C. Let's jump right to it. We see the tribulation judgments starting with the seven seals. I've already given you a detailed description of what happens in chapters 4 and chapters 5. And now we get to chapter 6. We talked in point 1 the last couple of weeks. The rider on the white horse. Again, refer back to the previous podcast. It's not Jesus Christ, although Jesus Christ does come back and ride a white horse in Revelation 19 as he comes back here. Not the same rider. This one is the Antichrist. He comes in with a bow, but no arrows because he comes in peacefully at first. But then you get to point number two. Now again, as I already said, we're going to be exhausted tonight. At least that's my goal. I'm going to need you guys all to pitch in to read all of these passages together. I'll share some of the brunt with you, but we all got to pitch in and do our parts. Number two, who can read verses three and four? Carson, have at it. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given hmm. to him a great sword. Now we see in point number two, the rider on the red horse. And this personifies war. Y'all got your first blank of point number one, right? The Antichrist. Your blank here is war. And this is around the midway point, because as we looked at in the last couple of weeks, those first three and a half years of the tribulation period, it's full of relative peace. Mark it down. Christians who Jesus Christ called the light and the salt of the earth, they're no longer going to be here anymore. We say relative peace because, yeah, the Antichrist is going to have the solution to everything. It's probably more than likely going to be one great big carnal party, to be honest. And if there's any moment of that that seems enticing to you, just wait till we're done tonight. But at that three and a half year point, you've got to think, Christians are not going to be here. The light and the salt are gone. When you don't have light, you don't have salt, you know what happens? You have darkness and you have things rotting away. Because what does salt do? Preserves. So right around this midway point, we're going to see this red rider. And as he said that he should kill one another, there was given unto him a great sword. During this time, we are going to see violence on this earth like you have never seen. 
Anybody pay attention to any articles and headlines in the last couple of weeks? Pales in comparison to what you've seen recently. You know what I find fascinating about that? Genesis 6-5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he continues on in verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. That's, that's Genesis chapter 6. What happened thereafter? A worldwide flood that wiped out everyone. Why bring that up? Not just because of great tribulation that came upon those people, but Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 24, 37, as the days of Noe were, because it's just a translation from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English, Take that, Noah in the Hebrew, translate it to the Greek, translate it into English because the translators were honest. It's Noah. As the days of Noe were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, a chapter we spent a great deal of time in the last couple of weeks. Now, why mention this? Anybody been witnessing as of late? Anybody pass out a track to somebody as a late? Anybody maybe in here who thinks to themselves, I'm a good person. I would never kill or maim anybody. You got to think, it's the good, religious, moral people who are going to be here during the tribulation period because they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They've trusted in their own works, in their own goodness, and not in the work and the goodness of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins. I'm a Bible believer. I'm telling you, as good and as moral as they are, those good family members that you have, when you invite them to church, those good friends of yours who don't want to come because they think they're okay with God, if they even make it to this point, they're going to see themselves commit atrocious crimes for the sake of staying alive. It is going to be bloody. It is going to be brutal. It is going to be your family members and friends who don't know Christ who are left here. They will turn into all kinds of savage beasts just to stay alive. Do you want to see that watching down from heaven, watching them partake in this? Number three, can I get a reader for verses five and six? Connor. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a Measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil in the middle. So this third rider, he's the rider on a black horse. This rider and this horse signify famine. Famine. Again, the supply chain shortages, the empty shelves of the grocery stores. Oh, this is just a, it's an appetizer for what's to come. Hey, shut up, Andy. Have you heard about... Have you heard about all of these, and I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories, but have you heard about all of these factories and these food warehouses that are mysteriously catching fire? Yep. Have you heard about who currently owns all of the farmland right now in the United States of America? <sighs> kind of creepy stuff happening. Whether or not things get rectified before the tribulation period or not, who knows? Who knows if these people have anything to do with it? All I know is what's coming. We just read it. Look at that. You know what's significant about a penny back during this time when John was writing? It was the equivalent of a day's wages, an entire day's wages, a penny just for some barley. Meaning you would work all day long in the tribulation period and everything you earn would go to just trying to survive. Note what it says there, too. Are they trying to grab all the ammo they can? 
Are they trying to grab all of the meat that they can? No. No. Barley and wheat. Are they trying to gain all the money that they possibly can with their college degrees and with their good, well-paying jobs? Are they trying to amass all that up so that they have a good stockpile, a good nest egg, so that when this day comes in the tribulation period, they'll be just fine? No. This passage doesn't say anything about gold. This passage doesn't say anything about money. So people who choose to reject Jesus Christ, who choose to reject the truth of His love in the gospel... They think that all of their money they'll be able to buy and stock up and stockpile everything that they can under the sun and all of this gold and money. It ain't going to do them a bit of good. Because that's not what's going to happen. It's not going to be all of this gold that they're going to latch on to. No, it's going to be wheat and barley, the essentials, the necessities to survive. That's what they're going to desire to have. So mark it down. If you're in here and you think, okay, you know what? Uh, I'm having way too much fun right now in my sin. Uh, once I hear that trumpet sound, I see all my friends disappear, then I'll know Jesus Christ was serious. And man, okay, when I'm in the tribulation period, all right, I'll be good. I'll just go to all my friends' house, get their guns and their ammo, and I'll be strong and tough. And I got a nice little savings account of $2,000. Making up an arbitrary number of what you guys think, or what you guys might think is big. I'll be good. I'll be fine. No, he won't. If you have that attitude now, if I can give you a little bit of a counsel, start stockpiling wheat and barley right now. Or, you can choose to get saved right now. There it is. Number four. Verses seven to eight, a reader. Andy. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death and hell. For in hell followed with them, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. That's from Tombstone. I know, I think that's, that's why you wanted to read it. I, I could tell, I could tell. The, part number four, the rider on a pale horse, this is death. This is death. And hell followed with him. You see, what's interesting about this and what most people don't understand, and, and I think this is where me personally, and I think we as a, as a whole, we need to do better in the way that we communicate the gospel to people. We need to be more effective communicators of the gospel, particularly when it comes to this notion of hell. Do you understand that in Matthew 25, 41, and this is why I, I never hesitate to mention this when I'm witnessing to people, because... It's a great Bible truth in Matthew 25, 41, that the hell was never, ever meant and intended for mankind. The Bible says, and Christ himself says, that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what they were for. But when Adam and Eve came along, and consequently when you and I came along, all of us chose Sin. We have all chosen our own way, the book of Isaiah says. And because we have all chosen sin, well, there's a wage to be paid for that. And Romans 6.23 says that that wage of sin that you choose is what? Death. death. But what happens and what follows death? As we just read. Hell. You trace those verses through the Bible and how you get people to understand. Look, do you understand that I'm not impl implying this is going to be you or I'm not, I'm not trying to say or judge you wrongfully saying that you're, you're doing this or that I don't like that you reject my message so you will go to hell, which is what so many lost people think of Christianity. They think that when we mention hell, we're just trying to be Bible thumbers or trying to be self-righteous. And maybe we are if we present it that way. But if you present it to them and you plead with them and present the case of, no, look, do you understand? A loving and a just God didn't create hell for you. 
But by default, you choosing to stay and remain in your sin, when Jesus Christ has offered His love and His mercy and His grace to you, when He's extended that gift and that love to you, when you choose to reject Him and choose to stay in your sin, you are by default accepting hell. I don't want that for you. If we effectively communicate that, think about the impact that would have on people. Whereas me, when I can get caught up in witnessing, I'll get caught up in a rhetoric or in a speech or in a rehearsal because I've done it so many times. I just kind of get used to their talking points and here's what I say and I got to just stop and think. No, just love on these people. Just love them and speak from your heart. And when you effectively communicate what is on your heart, we will see people saved at a more rapid pace. And it won't just be, well, hey, we're just plucking or we're just, you know, planting seeds when we go out witnessing. I don't know about you. And again, I get it. Don't come up and talk to me about the whole, well, no, it's a win, win, win. Yeah, I read Mark Hale's book. I know. It's a win, win, win. No matter when you preach Christ to somebody, if you get rejected or if they say, we'll hear you again another day. Or, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll receive this. I get it. But don't you think... That when we go out and witness and pass out tracts and share Christ with people, don't you think that Jesus, yeah, He wants to plant the seed, He wants to water it. Don't you think He wants to use us to see people saved through our witness? He does. Maybe we just need to become more effective communicators in order to do that. But that's what happens. And you realize also what's kind of connected with death. It kind of goes back to, remember in church history where we talked about the Black Plague? The Black Death as it's known in history. Remember that passage in Revelation 2 where he says that I will kill her children with death? Well, what was the Black Plague, plague other than a pestilence? I find this kind of interesting. Matthew 24, 7. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, that's the second writer, by the way. And there shall be famines, uh, that's the third writer, by the way, and pestilences. Pestilence is associated with death in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 2, and throughout Scripture. And here we see again, how is he going to kill people in the tribulation period? How are people going to die? Pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Uh, we got the time. I want to show you guys something from a, a pastor who just recently went home to be with the Lord. His name is Mark Trotter. Mark Trotter, for those of you who don't know, he was the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia. Mark Trotter was the man who preached on July 2nd, 1989, that got our pastor, Tom Gang, saved. And this man was a faithful Bible preacher, Bible teacher. This is a church that he was pastoring down in... Uh, uh, Columbus. This was back in, oh, hold on a second here. Uh, November 5th, 2015. And I want you to listen to this. He has a, a great podcast. If you guys are looking for some good preaching and a podcast, go to WordStrong. You can get it in the Apple Store, or I think if it's Android, you just have to go to his website, right? It's WordStrong. He's got How to Study the Bible on there, and he goes through verse by verse. This is an overview of what we're doing of Revelation. He goes verse by verse until chapter 12 because that's when he went to a different church. But uh, I wanted to pull this little four-minute clip to show you guys what he's talking about here as far as this whole pestilence thing is concerned. Keep in mind, it's 2015 when he's talking about this. Just listen. With each of these horsemen, I... We, we began talking about some of the shadows of these horsemen that are being cast on our present world. And even with this, this one of the pestilence, we, we can see those shadows of that on our planet right now, can't we? I mean, you see it in the news all, all the time, how antibiotics that have been used for years and years and years to battle all kinds of various sicknesses and disease and all of a sudden they're finding that they're no longer working. Doctors are beginning to fear that unless there's some kind of medical breakthrough that it won't be long before we find ourselves living like we were in that pre-antibiotic middle ages when it comes to the treatment of infectious disease. 
You know what they did in the Middle Ages if somebody had an infectious disease? Quarantine. Quarantined and put a mask on. There are new strains of, of disease that seem to come out of nowhere anymore that wipe out thousands of people. I mean, we've just, what was it, a year ago, the world was freaking out over Ebola. Okay, and it, it's still going on. It's not what it was back then. Okay, so, okay, it was Ebola then. And listen, y'all, it's just going to be something else in, in the future. And, and, and if those kind of pestilences aren't enough, you know, one of the things that we've also got to factor into the tribulation period is the fact that right now on this planet, man has actually added pestilence to the weapons of war. Do you realize, I think you do, that nations all over the world, including the United States, have stockpiled enough bacteria to infect the people of the world with scores and scores of diseases. There, there, there's enough chemical agents and nerve gas to wipe out utterly the world's population. Some of this stuff, you, you've read the same things I've read about. It can, some of this stuff can be ground into fine powders and simply sprayed into the winds that are blowing into a nation. And, and, and listen, if, if you think that men and nations during the tribulation period aren't going to have access to these kinds of arsenals or they, they aren't going to use them because, well, we signed a, a peace treaty saying we wouldn't. Uh, or, you know, if we think that there will be some remaining goodness in man that will cause him not to use this. If that's what's in our thinking, then we've not understood what we've seen thus far in Revelation chapter 6 when we're talking about this unbelievable period of time in our world. Hmm. 2015. And if you think that nations are going to wait until the tribulation period before they use some of this stuff? I'll think again. Could be wrong. Maybe God will take us home before that happens, but I don't know. To get to the spot in history, to get in the spot where it's like the days of Noah, where the thoughts and the intents of man's heart were evil continually, where his thoughts were only just filled with violence, I don't think this is going to happen overnight. We're already seeing the slow degradation of that right now. Right now. That's this fourth seal that God opens up in His rendering, this first account of the tribulation period. Number five. Uh, we will look at verses 9 through 11 later, but we see the persecution of the tribulation saints. Uh, hold your place here and look at chapter 7. During this time, God raises up 144,000 Jewish virgin male witnesses for Jesus Christ, and they go and lead the greatest evangelistic missions trip unlike anything this world has ever seen. Even better than what we looked at with some of those missionaries in the Philadelphian church period. They're going to reach out to all four corners of this earth, and they're going to be persecuted mightily for it. Chapter 7, look with me in verse 9. It says, uh, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. So this is talking about their fruit also, that they led to, to Jesus Christ. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Uh, you don't have to turn over there, but just listen to chapter 13, verse 14. How did they get those white robes? In verse 14 it says, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth, talking about the Antichrist, by the means of those miracles, we saw this in the weeks past, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. That is not the verse I wanted to read. And I'm just now realizing that. 
I don't know where it is, it's probably somewhere in chapter 13, but it talks about how those who didn't worship the image, those who didn't worship the beast, they were martyred. They lost their heads through martyrdom. That's what happened. I guess I could have just went straight to chapter 20, verse 4, because there's a cross-reference there. Let's try it. Go ahead and read it, James. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. No, there's something where it talks about how they they literally they, they were beheaded. Oh, maybe it's this one. I don't know why I was thinking in chapter 13. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark. Remember that 666 we talked about on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. More on that next week if we finish everything tonight. So that's what the fifth seal is. It's the persecution of tribulation saints. And then we see in the sixth seal, when that's opened, again, Christ is taking us through this first account of the tribulation. The earth is shaken, and the Son of God is revealed. Uh, you know what's interesting about these first six seals? You can look at that list in chronological order and then go back to Matthew 24. And you know what you'll find? In chronological order, everything we just talked about, Jesus is mentioning in Matthew 24. Which is even more so why Matthew 24 is not talking to or about the church. Understand, we talked about this before, there are a lot of churches that pull their doctrine from Matthew 24. To name a few, election, predestination, uh, tongues, healing, Spiritual gifts, those signs and wonders we talked about. Eternal security, the fact that there's something you can do to lose your salvation. A lot of churches pull verses out of context from Matthew 24. But again, look at these six seals here and then go compare it with Matthew 24. You'll see it's talking about the tribulation. The church isn't here. And again, as we would mentioned, chapter 7 you have the rapture of the tribulation saints, the gleanings that we talked about in a few weeks ago. Now, this is very, very important. Uh, look at number seven on your outline. When does it say that the seventh seal is opened? Chapter eight, chapter eight verse one. Uh, go ahead and read there. We finish chapter six with the sixth seal opening. And then you go to chapter eight, and it says, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half hour. Well, gee, that's interesting. Chapter 6 is talking about the six seals. And then chapter 8 is talking about the seventh seal opening up. And what's interesting is you look at chapter 7, and we already mentioned it's 144,000 Jewish male virgin Israelites from the tribes, all 12 tribes of Israel. They go and lead this missions trip. And we see two, and a half, or two witnesses of Moses and Elijah. They also show up later. And what chapter 7 is, and don't get confused by this, chapter 7 is a parenthesis period, if you will, of things that are happening, further details that are happening during the opening of the other six seals. It's just like, you know, when we were talking about Daniel's 70th week a few weeks ago. I mean... At the end of that 69th week, Messiah was cut off, right? So it should have only been seven years after Jesus died and rose again that the tribulation period should have been here and the kingdom restored to Christ. But here we are 2,000 years later. The church is a parenthesis period in between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's the same thing with chapter 7. Those 144,000, they come up during the time of those six seals. So don't be confused by that. That's very, very important. Then we come to chapter 8 and the opening of the seventh seal. And I need a reader for verses 6 and 7 because it's about to get real confusing here if we don't cover this. Sam. Chapter 8, 6, and 7. Yes. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. 
and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. So this is that first, or this is the seventh seal. And as we just saw, the opening of the seventh seal produces seven trumpets. All right, maybe this will help. Does anybody need this? If not, I can tell it to you later. All right. So follow along. We have seven seals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now when the seventh seal opens up, it opens up, I'm not going to draw a trumpet, but you get it, seven trumpets. That'll take me even longer to draw a trumpet. The seventh seal opens up seven trumpets, and you know what he's doing here? The six seals... If you didn't already kind of get it, catch it from going through our outline here, that's the first account of the tribulation. We've gone through all seven years of the tribulation with these first six seals being opened. The seventh seal, it just reveals the figure by which he will reveal the second account of the tribulation. Again, that's why we spent that time in the introduction going over the four Gospels. If the seven seals is the Matthew, then the seven trumpets is the Mark. Get it? It's the second account of the tribulation events. And just like the Gospels, man, I wish I didn't erase that now. How some Gospels cut out certain details that another one has, it's the same thing here. So the seventh seal and the seven trumpets, they don't progress the story along any further. Like I already covered in the intro, it just reveals the second revealing or second account of the tribulation period. Does that make sense? Because it can get real confusing. This is why a lot of people think, oh, these are another set of events that happened. No, it's the same seven years. It's just told in a different perspective, just like the Gospels. So we just read that first trumpet that was blast, and we see in point number one that it is hail and fire mingled with blood cast upon the earth. Now it's kind of hard to nail down the time frame as to when this begins, but if you wanted to try to connect the dots, these seven trumpets likely, likely take place at the end of the fifth seal, right around the time of the sixth seal, somewhere mingled in there. But you see that hail and fire mingle with blood. And it, as a result of that, what gets all burned up? A third of the trees and, and make a note here, it should say all grass. Because it says all vegetation gets burned up. That's what Sam just read. A third of the trees and the grass of the earth are burned up. Hail and fire mingled with blood coming down. Can you imagine what the air pollution is going to be like then? You think an N95 is going to save anyone then? No. It's going to, more people are going to get sick as a result of it. More people are going to be worn out as a result of it. More people are going to die from a famine because all of their crops got burnt up. Now you see why? A penny for a barley and for a measure of wheat. How important that is for tribulation people going through this horrendous time. A third of the trees and all grass of the earth burn up. You know what's interesting about these trumpets and these seals and all of it? The ten plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. It's just mirroring what we're going to see here. That was just a staging ground for what was to come when God rectifies and, and, and the restitution of all things comes about where His kingdom is finally restored. A lot of what we're going to see here, you can see parallels to that. Number two, I had a reader for verses 8 and 9, chapter 8. Two. And the second angel sounded, as it were, to break down the burning with the five, the five fireworks cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. 
So he says here that it's a gr- it was as it were a great mountain burning. And of course, you know, we always want to take the Bible literally. That's why, you know, a lot of people, they, they mystify the book of Revelation. Like, oh, what do you think the fire mingled with blood actually is? What it says. Except for moments, and this is a key understanding of Bible study. This is a rule of Bible study. You pay close attention to the words like and as, because those are similes. He's a first century man trying to describe a 20th century and 21st century phenomenon. When he says, I saw as it were a great mountain, more than likely talking about a giant meteor or a meteorite coming down on earth. Maybe it actually is in the form of a mountain, though, a pointed one. And what does it do? A great mountain burning with fire cast into the sea. A third part of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea animals die. And a third of the ships are destroyed. A third of all ships containing goods, containing people, containing souls of men, wiped out forever from the face of the earth. Man. Next, the third trumpet sounds. A reader for verses 10 to 11, please. Imagine what this is going to do to the earth, Heather. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamb. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and was upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third, of, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood as many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. A third. A great star, number three, called Wormwood, falls from heaven to the earth. And it falls on one-third of the rivers and fountains of waters and makes them bitter. And as a result of that, men die. Many men died. And keep in mind, I would say, I don't know, a couple hundred million people will have disappeared from the rapture. We're about, what, seven and a half billion people here on the face of the planet right now? Maybe, well, you know what, we'll give us a benefit of the doubt. A billion Christians disappear from the rapture. And then you talk about how a fourth of them are going to die when these riders come around and as they start killing people and you talk about a third of ships and the people that are on those ships and how they're gone and how many men are dying because of bitter waters. You think about this giant star falling into the rivers. No doubt the gases and the vapors of whatever this giant star is, it's going to have a poisonous effect on the water supply. It's not just talking about, oh, it's bitter, I'm not going to drink it. I'm not just talking about that. No, bitter to the point that it is poisonous. And when they partake of it, they're done. And you think about that, especially in light of this bitter herb. Wormwood is actually a very bitter herb. And of course, God talks about it in Deuteronomy 29, 17, 18. And he says, ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which are among them. And that's not a smiley face after that. And he says, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and what? Wormwood was God's punishment for idolatry. The worship of man, the worship of man's devices, the worship of everything that is set up here to get your time, your talent, your energy, your treasure, everything we pour money in that doesn't bring glory to God, everything that we devote time to that doesn't bring glory to God, these idols, not just to mention the religious idols of false gods, this is His punishment and His wrath poured down for idolatry. You know what's interesting? Each of these trumpets comes with an angel. This is the third angel, the third trumpet. Anybody tell me what the number three means? and signifies in the Bible? It's the number of God. 
Father, Son, Spirit. When you see that pattern established, it talks about, it's usually a picture of God. You, you learn more things through this number. When this number shows up, it usually points to God. You know what's interesting? When man rejects the living water of John chapter 4, he gets bitter water. When man rejects life, he gets poison. There's a theme for all of tonight. Man gets what he deserves. Hopefully that will be made more clear to you by the end of tonight. Number four. Follow with me in verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. You mean to tell me after everything we've covered so far and now this stuff, we're on your outline. A third of the lights of heaven are taken away, reducing the 24-hour day to a 16-hour day. You mean to tell me that after all of that and all the vegetation being wiped out and a third of the trees being done, and the oxygen levels and the air pollution just being even more rampant, and a third of the ships being wiped out, and a third of the rivers being dried up, and all this water being bitter and killing many men. You mean to tell me that after all of this, an angel comes and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's still three more left to go. This is serious stuff. You know what a woe means? You know what it means to say woe? It's an exclamation of grief. You thought this was bad? You ain't seen nothing yet. Find it fascinating that this is the fourth angel and the fourth trumpet. And wouldn't you know it, on the fourth day, God created all the things that he's now taken away. Sun, moon, stars. Now he's taken them away. Judgment. Number five. Oh boy. Look with me in chapter nine. Follow along, pay attention to every single verse I'm going to read. And the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus Christ has the keys to the bottomless pit. And he, Jesus Christ, opened the bottomless pit. Why on earth would he do a thing like that? And there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. This is like an action movie. What's going to come out? And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those who? That's mankind, by the way, men and women, which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. That's 144,000 Jewish male virgin witnesses, by the way. Everybody else, free game. Locusts, have at them. Everyone that's still around, however many billion that is at this point. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, verse 5, but that they should be tormented five months. This is the fifth angel with the fifth trumpet. And in verse 5, he says that they are going to torment people for five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. What is number five associated with in the Bible? death. Yeah, only the problem is for the first time in mankind's life he can seek it, but he's not going to find it. Verse 6. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. You think the suicide problem is bad now? When these things come on the scene, 
and they start tormenting your family members and your friends and our loved ones who are rejecting Christ right now, and they're going through this torment for five months, they're going to put a gun to their head and they're going to pull the trigger and nothing's going to happen to them. They're going to grab every blade they can find and try to end their own life and nothing's going to happen to them. And the shapes of the locusts were like on a horses, verse 7, prepared on the battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running the battle. And they had tails like on a scorpion's, and they were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. People for so long, even well-to-do Bible believers, have said that this is an Apache helicopter. Because again, John is a first century man trying to explain 21st century technology as he's seeing this stuff. But the only problem is, Apache helicopters don't rise up out of the bottomless pit. On your outline... Number five, scorpion-like locusts are released from the bottomless pit, ruled by Abaddon and Abalion. I didn't read that, but his name means destroyer. They're ruled by Satan. They are commanded not to hurt the grass, anything green, trees, 144,000 witnesses. They do not kill, but torture them for how long? Those struck by them will seek death, but they're not going to find it. And we just read about their appearance. Freaky looking things. You still ain't seen nothing yet because we have two more trumpets left to go. Verse 13, verse 12, One woe is past, behold, there come two woes after. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. These are not angelic angels from heaven because no angels are bound in scripture except for in 2 Peter 2:4 God spared not the angels that sinned in the past you can go back to Genesis ch- chapter 6 to read that one but God cast those angels that sinned down to where hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These are two locations in Scripture where it talks about angels being bound, and they ain't good ones. 1 Peter 3.18, you can read about it. Remember how I was telling you guys that that first rapture that happened of the Old Testament saints, Christ went down. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. It says that he went down and and got captivity captive and he led them up into the air. Well, remember how I told you guys there's a passage where it talks about Christ being in hell for three days, not burning and suffering. No, he did that on the cross, but preaching for three days. 1 Peter 3.18, you can check that out later. That's what he, these are the, the demons and the devils that he was preaching to, the angels he was preaching to, and probably some in hell as well, if not all of hell. Where are we at? Oh, four angels. Verse, they're bound in the great river Euphrates. Four angels were loose, verse 15, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000. In other words, in the Greek, there were no letters or words for million. This is 200 million. I'm on your outline. Four angels are released and 200 million horsemen are sent to kill a third of men. Check them out in verse 17. Thus I saw the horses in the vision and then that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. Out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. You know what? If anything, that's how these guys... Whatever these things are, they have a lot in common with us. Because you know what James chapter 3 says? Our tongue can be set on fire with hell. You ought to watch the words you speak to each other, to your lost family members and friends. 
because a tongue can do a mighty work. Behold what fire the tongue kindleth, James says. These guys, they have fire coming from their mouths. And their power is in their mouth and in their tails, verse 19. And their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues. You know what? I'm going to end there. Don't read verse 20 yet. On your outline. Scorpion-like locusts are released from the bottomless pit, ruled by Apollyon, the destroyer. That's Satan. I'm reading the last thing I just read. Number six, sorry. Four angels are released and 200 million horsemen to kill a third of all men. That's what they're supposed to do. There are four angels currently bound in the Euphrates River that are loosed to lead a cavalry that will kill a third of mankind. Most of the world's empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, Roman, had their origin near the Euphrates River. As did mankind, as did man's first sin, as did man's first murder, as did man's first war, as did man's first organized religion and government, and as is the last war, which we'll look at next week, Armageddon, Euphrates. Something interesting about that landmark. And we just saw the description of all of them and what they had. Now, this is Revelation chapter 9. And kind of like what we just saw with Revelation chapter 6, the very next chapter you have a parenthesis period. That's what chapter 10 is. A parenthesis of things that are going on during these seven trumpets. Again, this is just the second account of the tribulation period. Chapter 6 was the first account with the seven seals. This is the second account of Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And we've gone through these six trumpets now. And chapter 10 is a parenthesis period. 11, you see the rapture again. Which again, there's only one rapture of tribulation, saints. This is just to show you it's an account. But I want you guys to see some, and we'll pick up here next week. We'll end in verse 20. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues... Wouldn't you know it? Out of everything they've seen, out of everything they've been through, out of everything they suffered, out of everything they were tormented with, they repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. They would rather worship something that was created with their own hands that doesn't see, hear, or walk rather than worship the God whom we can see with our eyes when they're anointed, whom we can hear with the hearing of our ears, whom we can taste and see that the Lord is good, whom we can handle as Thomas was challenged to handle him, whom we can talk with in prayer and who talks with us in his word. They would rather cling to their false gods, their false idea of who God is, and their own man-made religion and pride. Even after they went through all of this. I'm preaching to myself here. But you can't tell me that's too hard witnessing to my friends right now when this is their future. How hard it is for them to receive Christ then through their stubbornness and their pride. Verse 21, not only their stubbornness and pride, but they're just their overall debauchery and sin. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. That what is what awaits all of our family members and friends who were either too shy or scared to share Christ with. Family members and friends whom we've shared enough with them. Uh, God's just going to have to get them through some other means because I've exhausted all of my means. Have you? I haven't. Yeah. That's what awaits them. And that's what awaits you 
if you have not surrendered now, if you have not come to the end of yourself and realized your need for a Savior, that it's not about your good works, it's not about what church you go to, it's not about what family you grew up in. You have to come to the end of yourself where you realize your need for a Savior, that it was your sin that put Him on the cross, and that you've all gone your own way. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. If you don't receive the love of the gospel now, this is what awaits you. He's giving you an opportunity now. So if you need to talk with somebody, you talk with somebody tonight. If you need to do business with God, you do business with God before you walk out the doors of this building. As you can clearly see, and as we're going to conclude next week, God is not messing around. It is the day of His great wrath and judgment where He has been storing up vials, literal vials, of His wrath to dump upon this place for all of the sin and rejection that has come against His Son throughout the last 6,000 years of human history. This is why I wanted you guys to be utterly exhausted tonight. Because we don't have much time. <laughs>